This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. All right. Uh, so, all right. We have here on the show uh, Chris Okamoto, and I'm very excited to speak with him. Uh, he's from Orange County, which is where I'm originally from as well. Um and uh, he's been spearing up there for like about 20 years. Is that correct? Yeah, that's about right. Went by pretty fast. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, can you share a little bit about how you got started and uh, a little bit of your background? Sure. Um, I grew up kind of probably like a lot of spearfishing guys did doing rod and reel. I started out maybe when I was about, I don't know, I can remember when I was about four years old fishing for trout with my folks. And then in junior high, I got into kind of bass fishing and fishing for bluegill and things like that. In high school, I started working at a fishing tackle shop. And then uh, from there, when I was in college, I, the first time I went was just basically a three-prong down in Baja. And we were shooting mullet and small bass and things like that. And even then, I didn't get into it until I started working down at the aquarium. And one of my buddies, uh, Mako Fukua, he kind, of, he kind of got into it before I did. And I'd see him catch fish or shoot fish, and it, you know, I didn't think I would ever be able to do it. And then I went out with him a couple times. And first time, I didn't really get into it. The second time, I was hooked. I think I shot like a bunch of sheephead and a couple calico bass, and I just couldn't get enough of it after that. I just kept going as much as I could. And luckily for me, my job is in San Pedro, so I was really close to the whole ocean area from San Pedro all the way to Redondo. And that's where I kind of cut my teeth into spearfishing. Okay, so uh, do you live in Orange County, or are you more from the L.A. area? Well, I, I was I was born in, uh, like, the Torrance Gardena area, and then I moved to Orange County, gosh, maybe, I, I don't know, maybe about 15 years ago or so, and I've been there ever since. Oh, okay, all right, yeah. Um, and so, so your current job, you said you work at the aquarium. So which aquarium you work at? Like, what's your current job? So the aquarium I work at is a real small one that a lot of people might not know about. It's in the Los Angeles area. It's actually in San Pedro. It's called Cabrillo Marine Aquarium. It's 
an aquarium that's much smaller than like the aquarium of the Pacific. Um, our specialty is kind of like hands-on learning. We, we specialize in Southern California. So all of our tanks, or I should say most of our tanks are cold water temperate systems. And so our fish aren't real flashy, but we have a lot of the local species that a lot of the spearfishing guys would hunt. And my particular job area, I'm an aquarist. So it's kind of weird. When I started out at the aquarium, I was a part-timer and I worked in the programs division. So that means I would run the slideshows and do the touch tank and talk to the general public. And then from there, I moved on to the outreach division where I would go to different schools and teach marine biology offsite. And I actually ran that position for about 13 years before moving into the aquarist position that I am now. And the aquarist position, um, it's kind of like my dream job. I uh, get to collect all the different specimens that we have at the aquarium. And uh, we build the tanks and maintain the water quality and everything else. But for me, the best part about it is I also get to fabricate equipment. So I build all of the traps. I build all of the nets. Um, I run a lot of the stuff that's on the boat, and I build things that we might need on the boat, too. So it's a lot of fun. When people ask me what my day is like, almost every day is a little different. And for me, who has a very short attention span, that works out perfect. I, I feel like uh, most of us that spearfish are kind of similar that's why we keep like going at it because it's like constant stimulation and con you never know what's the next uh you know like no time in the water is the same so that's what kind of keeps us hooked oh yeah know? definitely like one of the things i love rod and reel fishing and i still go to take my son but when you're outside and you're holding a rod you only get to see what's happening on the top you might see a fish boil if you're lucky if you have polaroids you might see a little bit underneath but man when you're free diving you get to see it all and if you're quiet I mean, some of the experiences that we've all had are just phenomenal. You just, you can't match that to anything outside of the water. What is like one of your top, let's say top experiences, you know, ever? Yeah. Or let's say top three. Let's say, let's go over your top three. Cause I think I, there's a couple of them I want to ask you about later on, but. Well, I mean, I, I was thinking about this the other day, like, cause now it's white sea bass. And I remember one time I was hunting at Catalina Island and this was back when Catalina used to have a lot of kelp on the front side. And I was diving one spot, wasn't seeing anything. And then on my way back to my boat, I saw a big school of sea bass. And to this day, it's the biggest school I've seen. There was at least 100 fish in that school. And they were probably, I don't know, 30 to 50 pounds or so. So I was kind of behind the kelp and I saw a really nice one. I lined up and right behind it was an even bigger one. And I pulled the rookie mistake and swung the gun and spooked the whole school. And all of them took off, but they were heading towards another area of the island they weren't just cruising they were they were really hauling butt they were moving fast so i was like oh, i bet they're going to the next kelp bed so i jumped in my boat ran over to the next kelp bed dropped in and started running transects up and down it and sure enough like 15 minutes later the school breezed by again and this time instead of being greedy i picked the closest one and i shot like a 45 pounder or something that day so i mean just seeing those fish light up like that was was phenomenal and i'd say that was one of the things that i remember about spearfishing um, another great event was when the bluefin first started showing up in Southern California. It was probably the second year that they um, were actually guys were starting to shoot them. And I was on my boat, which is my boat is small. I have a 16 foot uh, radon craft Bahia. It's kind of like it's got the radon hole. And yep. uh, we took it all the way out 40 miles offshore. And I was with uh, my buddy Jeff Barr that day, and we saw the tuna like just puddling on the surface. So he went after him and couldn't close the gap. And then when it was my turn, I just remember, you know, I'm on the surface looking down in the water and you just see these ghostly shapes start breezing by. 
And I kicked yep. down to them like 30 feet or so. And then it was just amazing just seeing those big Volkswagens just blowing by like that. And I took a shot and lucked out and I got a 220 that time. <laughs> Put it on. I mean, to get that on a 16 foot boat was incredible. We took pretty much all of our strength to drag it over the side and then put it up in the bow and then and then drive it back to uh, San Diego. I mean, it was just, that's a story that I'll be telling my kid for the rest of my life. I'm sure he's going to get tired of hearing it. Oh, yeah. That's the beauty of, uh, you know, I, I want to be the cool grandpa, you know, like <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I remember that my first moment too, getting Vortex and it was like out of a National Geographic and I was just so thankful. And, and, and when I got done, I was like, and oh, by the way, I missed, but I got done. And the rest, of the, the rest of that day, I was sitting there just thinking about it, like where how fortunate we are. We see things that only people like dream of or see on, you know, planet Earth or, or that that show planet Earth or my, you know, blue planet or whatever it is. Um, it's just awesome that we get to experience all of that. Oh, yeah. There, there's not too many people in the world that could say they've seen a, a school of bluefin, especially big bluefin. Now we're talking, you know, these fish are going upwards of 300 plus um, blow by like that. I'm really hoping they come again this year, but we'll have to see. Yeah, yeah. So uh, any more experiences you want to talk about or that's? Uh, I mean, we could talk. We, just, we could talk all day. At, um, yeah, just no. Well, things. No, and that's fine because I actually wanted to ask you, you know, with you being in aquarium, uh, being Aquarius and, and working uh, in that field, that industry, how do you think that's like helped you spearfish? Um, you know, it, it's a little bit different because most of the times when I collect out at the aquarium, I'm on scuba. But there are times when I get to collect on uh, free diving, too, when there's certain species that we'll go after. But I would say more as a, I guess, a marine biologist, you kind of notice things a little bit more than maybe the average person might on their on their first time. So when I'm diving for different fish, I might, I, I can't say I guarantee this because I don't know anybody who I've really talked to that um, in depth about what's different between what I see and what they see. But, but I see things differently as far as bait, like the way the bait schools up sometimes. Yeah. Um, current and especially habitat. I think a lot of it is, Sometimes when I'm really lucky, it's just I might have a little bit better understanding of, of what kind of habitat a certain fish might have. No, that's awesome. Uh, that's kind of one of the um, things I was really interested in talking to you specifically about because I have another friend who's a biologist uh, and he was very instrumental in in this new area I was diving to like explain to me what every fish does, what it's habit, like what it's habits are and all this stuff like that. And it was like, definitely, I don't want to say like got a leg up, but he understood the big picture of everything, you know? Um, yeah, there, there's definitely other things that, that we might. Hello. Yeah. Can you hear me, Brett? I'm okay. Sorry. I gotcha. I gotcha. No, that's fine. We'll just edit that. It's <laughs> fine. Um, okay. So the next question I have for you, um, uh, anybody that can tell when they visit your, uh, Instagram account, which is by the way, if you want to say that right now, Oh, it's just under Oak power. O A K P W U R. Yeah. You seem to favor. There's, the white there's another one that we actually wrote. Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, no, go ahead. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Oh, no, no, no. That's right. 
Uh, you just seem to favorite the uh, the white sea bass, the uh, the ghost. Um, is that true? Like, is that your favorite fish to hunt? Uh, I wouldn't say it's my favorite. <laughs> it's probably the most challenging. And uh, it's one that I definitely do enjoy during the uh, kind of the springtime. It, it's one of those, all the guys that hunt sea bass real seriously, I, I would say it's more of a love-hate relationship <laughs> because when you get one, it's phenomenal. You know, that other 90% of the time when you're hunting that cold, dirty water, it's not so much fun. Um, it's, it's one of the fish I enjoy hunting for sure. Okay. Yeah. Um, I very much have a love hate relationship with that fish as well. <laughs> um, so question, do you have any, um, particular gear that you like a setup that you really prefer when you're going after sea bass or, uh, any tactics or, or anything that you kind of look to like a formula? Like I have my little formula, um, that I try to share with people, but that, that you Phil is pretty, uh, is pretty proven, so to speak. Um, well, like, I guess the first question you have is on gear wise, what I normally go. So, so there's pretty much only two situations that I'm hunting sea bass, which is probably the same with everybody else is it's either off going on a shore dive or on a boat dive. And if I'm going on the shore dive and it's a kind of a a gnarlier swell where I know I'm going to get beat on the rocks, I typically will carry a lighter, uh, custom wood gun, like a 55 inch, uh, three band gun. And then if I'm go- diving off a boat, I, my, my very favorite sea bass gun, and this is a gun that I've been using for years. It's a 59 inch. Um, there's a guy named Gil Gacula who passed away a few years ago and he built yep. me this gun called the SoCal tracker. And that gun, it's an enclosed track, 59 inch. I have either a, a stainless addiction or Mori shaft and all a slip tip on it. I only hunt sea bass with slip tips on them. And that one's a uh, 5 16th inch shaft. And I only hunt with, most of the time when I'm hunting for sea bass, it's almost always uh, a float line. And my favorite float line that I'll normally use will be about, I don't know, 125 to 130 foot. Dark Waters built my last one. And it has an integrated bungee on front. And on the back, it's really cool because the Dyneema inside um, will kind of change colors towards the end. So you can tell when you're running out of line. But I like float lines better than reels just because in my early days when I was hunting, I got spooled a couple times on big sea bass on a reel, and that just kind of freaked me out. And the float line, I'm usually able to put a little more pressure on them. And just, you know, everybody does it different, but for me, that's what I prefer. So with your float line, uh, um, do you put a carrot then, float on it? Do you put a carrot float on your float line? Uh, sometimes. Yeah, sometimes. Most of the time, I don't. Um, uh, Phil Horendon just sent me one of his, um, the fiberglass ones he makes, the really small egg ones. That's really nice. And that one cuts through the kelp a lot better. So I've been experimenting with that one on shore dives. And I haven't really, I haven't shot any big sea bass this season. So I won't know how well that works until the very end. But the idea of being able to know when you're running towards the end of your line, when you see that float is definitely going to be helpful. Um, Otherwise, when I'm towing, on my other float lines now I, I just look for that color change at the end usually okay nice nice yeah i like that uh dark waters uh yeah shout out to them their products seem uh you know kind of next level as far as like you're talking about those little attention to detail with the line changing colors and the uh, integrated bungee and all of that so uh yeah matt's doing a real good job with that stuff yeah, I was really happy with mine. One of the ones that he built me, um, he was asking me on colors, and I was like, well, I kind of like blue because I was looking for something that 
shows up well inside the kelp line. And he built me one kind of like a blue green. And at first I, I was thinking, oh, it's not bright enough. But when I was actually taking it out in the water, it is perfect. It, it looks different. So if somebody's driving by it, it doesn't look like, you know, anything that would look like kelp at all. It looks like something different. And that's good because I want people to not run me over if they're going through the kelp beds, which is why I wanted a bright. Oh, absolutely. Then, oh, go ahead, Brett. No, please go ahead. Sorry. Oh, and then you're asking about techniques. I don't really have any like super secret techniques except for what I always tell people when they're asking me, like especially if they're just starting out, I always tell them go slow. Um, I think a lot of guys that are sea bass hunting um, are kicking through the kelp just too fast. For me, it's it's if I'm on a good dive and it's like a minute and a half underwater, when I'm on top, the other thing that I always tell people is get a watch. Because you will be surprised how short you're cutting your dives on your uh, breathe-up intervals. So if I'm down a minute and a half, I like to be out of the water for a good, you know, two and a half to three minutes to breathe up. And that way I'm well rested. So my next dive is also going to be a pretty decent long one. When Before when I was diving, I remember Dam told me this. He said, uh, my buddy Dam Wynn, um, he told me, hey, your, your intervals are just too short. And he was correct. I was probably, I, in my mind, I thought I was resting like a minute, a minute and a half, and it was more like 45 seconds. So by getting a good dive watch, that helped me tremendously. Um, so like I said, I like to, to have a long interval when I'm breathing up. I think that allows the area that I'm diving, the kelp beds, to quiet down a little bit, less likely to spook the fish. Because you know how white sea bass are, man. If you make any kind of noise, they're gone. Bubble comes out of your snorkel, you know, you burp one out of your suit, your fins click. If they're if they're nearby, they're usually gone. So I try to be as quiet as possible and move as slow as possible. And when I'm um, running through a kelp bed, I will usually start on the, I mean, pretty much everybody does this, start on the upcurrent edge. I usually will uh, swim kind of the edge of the bed and then cut back in the middle and just zigzag until I've covered most of the bed and then head out. Um, a lot of times guys ask me about the croaking sounds. I've shot fish that were in beds that were croaking and I've shot fish that were just no sounds at all. In fact, sometimes the best sea bass beds are the ones that are completely dead and I'll be diving in there and thinking, man, this place is just, it's like a desert. There's nothing in here, no calico, no bait fish or anything. And sure enough, the biggest sea bass are sometimes there too. So that's why I say I don't have any great techniques to share with anybody. It's just, it's just, you got to put your time in the water. I think, um, and, and have a good circle of friends who are also spending that time in the water. So you kind of know when the fish are around. That helps out tremendously too. Yeah, that's um, my, you know, my biggest thing is uh, time in the water. And then also with white sea bass, they're either there or they're not. So yeah, yeah timing is everything. <laughs> yeah, yeah that's, that is definitely true. I mean, a lot of times guys say, oh yeah, they're only there on the high tide or, you know, but uh, there's been many times when I've shot fish on a low tide, on a minus tide, between the tides. It's just I don't think anybody really knows when they're in there for whatever reason. They're 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 in there on their own time whenever they want to go. It could be on any tide, any time of day. I mean, I've I've missed it many times. Like one of the other things is that I tell people is um, sea bass do variety of of croaks. I don't think it's just one croak. I, there's one croak that you hear most people talk about where it's like a hype, it'll go boop, and then it drops down and it goes boop, boop, and then there'll be a pause and then it'll start again. 
that's one of the croaks I think the males use to um, attract the females. But I hear other different kinds of croaks too. There's one that we call the motorboat croaking that sounds just like an outboard engine purring at kind of a, a lower speed. And when I hear that one and if it's loud, it usually means there's a big school nearby. And there's been a couple of times where just due to time constraints, I had to bail out of the bed and get home. And my friends were there and they were like, hey, you missed it. Like a half hour later, the whole bed was filled with sea bass. And I was like, man, I, I patrolled that bed for two solid hours. I didn't see not even the sign of a fish. So it's like you said, they, they come in when they want to. And they're either there or they're not. And unfortunately, most times they're not. They're out in the deep sand channels doing their thing or some other place too. <laughs> yes, it's so true. It's like you said, it's a love-hate relationship, you know. <laughs> but I was, I was like, uh, you know, I prefer actually uh, now sea bass hunting. At least you're spending your time in a kelp bed, uh, you know, diving, and you're kind of seeing that environment. When you go for tuna, it's the most frustrating thing sometimes, where it's like whack-a-mole, and you don't see anything other than blue water all day long, you know. Yeah. Or maybe. <laughs> maybe the occasional tuna screaming by, you know? Yeah. yeah, that's a, that's a tough one. And, and the tuna, a lot of the guys that don't dive the tuna, like they think that it's so easy where, Oh yeah, you know, so-and-so jumped over the side and, and shot a, uh, 275 pounder or whatever. And there's days where we do, you know, I don't know, maybe 20 or 30 jumps in the water and you're kicking as hard as you can to get either to keep up with them, to get in front of them, to drop down on them and, and never get a shot off. It, it is incredible incredibly frustrating and then sometimes it's you know it's easy you hop off the boat and all of a sudden they're just doing the vortex right around you. it's just it, it is a very hard style of, of hunting and i don't think a lot of people realize that about you know they think it's that easy and it, it really isn't the guys that are really good like you know balta and blummer and those guys they know they have a little bit of more of a science um on how to to dive on them and they connect a lot more than we do but for the average guy it, it's not that easy yeah, it's uh, it's it like you said, it's it's so frustrating, and it's like you know you have that. It seems like there's that week throughout the summer where all of a sudden it's like you could get you know they are just docile, or for whatever reason you can just jump in and swim right up to a 200 pounder and plug it in the face, and then for the yeah. rest of the time you can't even get near them. You know, it's yeah, it's just a kind of an yeah. odd thing. Um. So, we, we, you know, we talked about the sea bass thing, but you said you like, you know, do you, you like going out to Catalina? You're diving out there obviously quite a bit. And uh, I'm sure, sure you're quite famous in our little circle of friends uh, with your shark footage from the summer. Do you want to tell us about that? Oh, yeah. So, so like when you're asking me what my favorite fish to hunt, it's probably yellowtail. I mean, I love hunting yellowtail. They, you know, you get to see big schools. It's not that uncommon to see them. You have to kind of fool them sometimes. And I love yellowtail hunting, but the whole white shark thing, and, and it's, I don't know if you knew that it happened twice to me. It wasn't just once. Yeah. So uh, a couple of years ago, we were down at Ship Rock and I was with my buddy, Jamie um, Pumford on his boat. And we were diving for yellowtail. The current was screaming. And I told him as soon as we, you know, dropped the hook i was like hey man there's gonna be yellowtail here the current looks right the bait was stacked up right so we jumped in and we kicked out to the to the uh the point area of the current and even before i could make the first drop i saw three really nice yellowtail in the 30 pound class 
And then I breathed up and made the drop and started looking. And then I remember vividly, I, I looked back to check the boat to make sure that we had a good anchorage. And um, I saw his boat and then I saw a fin out of the water and I turned my head and you could see that on that video that I recorded where I look at it, I turn and then I turn back at it. When I turned the first time, I thought it was a mola mola because I had seen a mola there maybe a week before. So I thought about it just for that quick second. I was like, that wasn't a mola fin. And I looked back again and sure enough, man, you saw the, uh, the, the dorsal fin, the top fin, and then the caudal fin, the tail fin cutting the water. And right away, my heart sank. And I um, immediately ducked my head in the water. And unfortunately, the camera didn't catch it. But the first pass that that fish made was just a gritty image. It was, you know, the water wasn't that clear. It was just, it was unreal to see that thing blow by. So I got out of the water. And as I was getting out, some other guys were getting ready to drop the hook on the other side of us. And I told them, don't go in the water, man. That was a big white shark. So we sat on the boat. We were on that boat, and the other part that people don't know is we sat on that boat probably 45 minutes waiting, and we were debating what to do. And a, the only reason we stayed there that long is a sea lion came, and it was just fooling around in the water, just not not concerned at all. So we, you know, I'm watching it. I'm like, oh, that shark is gone. There's no way it's get, that sea lion's going to be playing around like that. So foolishly, we jumped back in the water and kicked back towards the point. And I think on my second drop, and you'll see that in the video. I'm looking one way and then all of a sudden the thing came right up on my right side and I just shook my head over and I saw it and it made a pass within three feet of me and just blew by. And then after that, we pretty much got out of the water and we moved and And that was just a, you know, a very scary experience. That shark, I always tell people too, was not trying to kill me. It was, it was just a little bit curious to see what we were because if it wanted me, it could have easily taken me on the second pass when it came up. It just wanted to see what I was. Um, the other time that happened was a year later at Farnsworth bank. And, uh, we were, I was with my buddy Eric Stewart and that time we we're on my boat. We were diving for yellowtail and same thing. Current's going good. I told him, Hey man, there's going to be yellowtail here on my way out. I saw three nice yellowtail get ready to make drops, you know, breathe up, drop down. And probably like the third drop, um, I'm hanging at 25 feet of water, just, just checking the bait and everything else. And just, Right below me, the, the shark showed up. That was a smaller one. I think that one was 12 foot. The one at Shiprock was bigger. That was a 14 footer. Um, the smaller one came up vertically at me, which you'll see in the video. It's just it's just coming straight vertical, which is right away. I'm like, I'm going to get bit. It's going to bite me right in my side because I'm kind of laying horizontal. And, and it came up, and I swung my gun at it, and that one turned. And it turned and then I kicked to the boat and I didn't know it kind of at the beginning until I watched the video later, but that, that shark tracked us all the way back to the boat. It was swimming parallel, maybe 12 feet out from me, but the water was a little bit murky. You could, you'll see it in the film, but I didn't really see it when we were swimming back. That one was gnarly because of the way it came. It was coming up at me. And, and when I watched that film, um, I always tell people that, um, I think if I had panicked on either one of those sharks and I just bolted for the surface, I have a feeling it would have triggered some kind of feeding response because the second shark was definitely heading right towards me. And I think the only reason he, he turned is, you know, I swung the gun at him and he wasn't in attack mode either. He was in a, a curious mode, but he was in a more curious mode than the ship rock shark. The ship rock shark was just cruising by. 
took a look. This one looked like he was, you know, more interested in what I was until I swung the gun at him. And, uh, and like I said, I always tell, you know, people are like, well, weren't you scared? Well, yeah, I was scared, but at least I didn't panic. If I had panicked, it could have been a different story. So since then, I bought a shark shield. It's that electrified whip, whip that hangs off your leg. And I'll let you know how that works, because this season, come June, when Yellowtail season comes around, I'll uh, be wearing that when I dive. Yeah, you know, there's so much to talk about that, too, as far as white sharks. And, uh, uh, you know, so many theories out there. And for me, I, you know, I have my own theories, my own experiences with sharks Uh and it's like, and even surfing, you know, too, um, it's, I feel like visibility saves your life sometimes, you know, when, when there's no viz and you've got a giant animal coming full bore. And even like you said, if it's an inquisitive look, you're still getting bit or it might be an inquisitive bite. Um, but when they're coming and closing the distance like that, if it's like five feet of viz when you're hunting for white sea bass or something, uh, that shark is pretty much committed at that point. And I think like in your situation, when you're out of Farnsworth, which is super sharky anyways, but <laughs> when you're out of Farnsworth and you're, and you're down there and you, you know, that shark's, like you said, it's coming cause it's, you know, obviously vertical inquisitive, like hunt mode and it backed off. And, uh, and then there's the other side, like where you're saying you didn't panic. Right. I mean, that's true for terrestrial and Marine animals, right? Yeah. Yeah, I think I think anything could be put in attack mode if if you act like prey. Yeah, um, it's it is not a favorable thing. The um... pursuing wild game in wild places. Tune in to Hunt Stand presents Saturdays at eight thirty p.m. Eastern. Waypoint TV, the destination for outdoor entertainment. The thing that a lot of people ask me about. Um, white sharks like how come there's so many and everything you know the the general thought is probably because of the gillnet ban the old back in the 80s or late 80s i should say when they stopped doing uh, local or close to near shore gillnetting um, it allowed a lot of fish to flourish like white sea bass are you know way better white sea bass hunting now than there was back then but those gillnets probably killed a lot of the baby white sharks and now you see it all over the news those baby white sharks are all over the place at the beaches um, in Southern California, and they're growing up, and they're growing up, and you know they normally patrol seal rookeries in different spots, but each island can only hold a certain amount of, of you know, big animals like that for feeding wise. And Chris Lowe, um, one of his talks, he talked about, I think it was at Guadalupe, where the white sharks were actually showing aggression to each other. The bigger ones were chasing off the smaller ones, so the smaller ones have to find other spots to settle out at, and and. At Catalina, my guess is, and, and I have no no data at all to back this up, but my guess is there's probably three sharks at any given time at Catalina Island during the summer. And I just, you know, that's my rough guess. And the only reason I have that rough guess, too, is a lot of times the guys that are fishing, you know, they'll be fishing around the entire island and they'll see two different sharks. And for them to see the same shark twice, it's not going to happen if you're looking at a very, you know, far distant from one end of the island to the other. I think those are all different hunting territories for some of those smaller white sharks. And when I say smaller, they're not, you know, the baby three or four footers. They're like probably 12 foot and up, 12 to 15s are my guess. Right. They just switched over to hunting mammals from fish pretty much around that, around that uh, size, yeah. right? Yeah, about 10, they think usually around 10 to 11 feet, I think is when they go from fish to mammals. And even, even the sharks that are 
bigger will still hunt some of the bigger fish, I think. But yeah, they're definitely eating mammals from 12 foot on up. And that's why we get bit. And you're talking about the dirty water thing. That's a hundred percent. It's just, you know, mistaken identity when you're sitting on a surfboard and you have that big giant silhouette, it kind of looks like a big fat, like elephant seal, the way the board is cut out, the way your arms kind of stick out of the side and sharks aren't that smart. They just think that's food and that's why they hit us. But in murky water, you know, that, that one of the things that changed my life is after the second time the shark breezed us at Catalina Island, I, I won't hunt yellowtail in dirty water anymore. It's just not worth it to me. So last year, the water was dirty at Catalina almost the entire year. I don't think I did more than two dives at Catalina Island, and I wouldn't dive unless it was 25 foot or better than this. Um, it's funny you say that because I don't, I don't feel like so much of a coward now because that's my rule of thumb too. <laughs> it's not fun to know that, you know, you're breaking rules. And for me, you know, and you too, I mean, it's not really about uh, us anymore. You know, we have a family and all of that. And uh, it's just not fun to have that in my mind. So I prefer to hunt, you know, in pretty good, clear water and enjoy myself rather than have my heart rate through the roof the whole time because you never know what's around the next corner, you know? Yeah, I mean, it, it is it is kind of a, one of the unfortunate things about spearfishing is that those white sharks, like I said, they're finding new places to hang out, and the, the little ones are growing up to be big ones, and they're starting to be more common. So my, my guess is is the shark attacks around Southern California, actually, I shouldn't say Southern, around California, from Southern California all the way up to the uh, Red Triangle area, Northern Cali, are going to be pretty hot spots. So, you know, whereas we used to have I think it used to be one fatal attack every 10 years or something like that. I think it, that's going to increase pretty tremendously. The guys that were up at doing the research up in uh, the Fairline Islands area on the seal rookeries and stuff, they said that the amount of seals that had been attacked up there and were showing wounds were, I, I think, more than more than like 20% or something like that. It was, it was a huge number increase, whatever it was they had talked about. And if they're biting seals and sea lions, you know, there's a decent chance that we could get bit too. So just have to be more careful about everything. Yeah. And, uh, it's, you know, the, the, the thing that I always kind of find wild is, uh, with all the, the, the research now and the data, and, uh, I'm like addicted to following that shark tracker app and seeing the patterns. I mean, I used to train dolphins and sea lions, uh, as a contractor for the military. So, and just in my life growing up, I've always been attracted, attracted, kind of like intrigued by, uh, you know, animals, right? Like that's why we do have the stuff we do, um, and, and animal behavior. So it's so interesting to me to see like there are patterns with these sharks and you know, like, okay, in October, they're going to come back and they're going to be around here or, you know, summer here they come and they follow the food just like every other animal, you know? So it's, I, I kind of pay more attention to that stuff now just to uh, be more risk adverse, you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it's to me, it, it always seems like if we're going to get hit on white sharks, I always think for some reason it'll be closer to the fall or maybe earlier spring when the water's cooler. It doesn't seem like they like a lot of really, really hot water. I mean, you show they show up in Hawaii and places like that too, but for whatever reason, it just seems like they're more aggressive when the water's a little bit cooler. And that's one of the reasons why also I won't hunt yellowtail in the middle of winter. Yellowtail around, I mean, the home guard's around all year round. You could shoot them at Catalina and other places, but 
you're not going to catch me diving in cold green water during the wintertime. That's just statistically not something that, that I would find that rewarding. And you're talking about being nervous and stuff like that too. Yeah. It would make me nervous. And I also, when I hunt, I don't want to give off a nervous vibe. Um, you know, that's how you become prey. I think if you're just shivering and stuff and, and not acting right, might be you attract the wrong kind of animals. So I would rather hunt in the summer when I'm a little bit, um, a little bit more warmed up and, and when the water is a little bit clearer, hopefully, and I don't have to worry about those things. No, that's a solid, solid point. You're absolutely right. Like, you know, how many times do we talk about where, uh, you know, where you get in that super predator mode and like that hardcore vibe just scares all the fish away, you know, yeah. when you don't yeah. care. Like when I target practice, sometimes all of a sudden you're like, I saw more fish today, just target practicing, being loud, but not giving that vibe off. And they just kind of come over and they're inquisitive. Um, that happens to me all the time. And like down in the tropics and stuff where you're, you're practicing that clear water, but you see so many fish and I swear it's just because you don't care. Yeah. I, I agree with that hundred percent. Um, so like you've been diving for 20 years, correct? Like around 20 years, right? Somewhere around there. Yeah. So do you have any like long-term goals or like, do you have any like benchmarks you kind of want to hit as a, as a spear fisherman? Like, uh, world records or anything or um not so much world records i'm not really a record chaser or anything like that or uh not really i mean there's there's small local tournaments that i'll do like the um the mcnulty sea bass classic that's going on right now i'll do that one but as far as setting any world records no i would like to take a uh advanced freediver class like a level two or something like that where i could dive deeper and be more comfortable on it that would definitely be one of my goals um, other than that, no, I can't, I can't think of anything. I've been really fortunate in my life. I've been able to, you know, to get a lot of different kinds of fish and some pretty decent sized fish too. lobsters. It'd be nice to get a big, like 10 pounder, but I don't know if I'd want to eat it. Something that big either. So I'm not a big bug hunter. I like, I like catching a lot of legal size limits and that pretty much fulfills my needs for bugs. So other than that, no. I mean, I'd like to hunt bigger yellowtail, like maybe in New Zealand or something someday. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That, that looks fun. <laughs> and those kingies, they come in those giant schools like that, and they're all, there's some monster fish down there. I mean, yeah, 100 pounds and things like that. Yeah, insane. Yeah, the lobster thing's funny. I caught like a 13-pounder one time. Wow. Uh, yeah, when I was at work. That's uh, kind of funny. <laughs> and... uh I actually let it go, you know, because I just kind of felt guilty. I'm like, this thing's probably been alive for 70 years, and I'm going to eat you, you know? So I actually kind of put him back in a high, hit him in a little spot. Uh, took a picture with him, of course, on an old flippy phone back in the day, and then let him go, you know? Um, so you said you travel a lot, too. Have you, where, where have you traveled throughout the world and, you know, for oh. varieties of fish? You know, I'm not not so much for spearfishing. For work, I've I've had to go to Japan for um, working at a different aquarium. I'm doing presentations there, but spear-wise, the only place I've really um, spearfished that was not in California has been out in uh, in down in Baja. Um, La Paz is one of my favorite places to go. But until my kid gets a little older, we could do a family vacation. I haven't been back since. So I'm kind of eager to go back and uh, shoot amberjack and wallow and stuff down there. Yeah, I mean, God, Baja is such a gift for us. <laughs> yeah. 
you could go i mean that the, the beauty thing about that peninsula is that you can have any variety of fish you just got to know where to go it's just incredible yeah i mean water that's warm diving in warm water is a blessing and, and my friends that, that dive in warm water like tropic stuff a lot of times they're like no i won't dive in california the water's too cold and they're and they're right when you're in baja it is so nice to wear you know, just a lycra or even like a three mil suit. Whereas in the wintertime here, we're, or at least I am, I'm in a seven mil suit. The difference is so much nicer being in warm water and being, you know, more relaxed. So you could do deeper dives and everything else. And the fish there, they're so, they're gigantic. I mean, the reef fish there are big, the big yellowtail, big amberjack, big grouper, all kinds of fun stuff down there. Oh yeah. We went down there uh, this summer uh, a few times and, uh, you know, the first day, I think, well, at least two di- the first within two days, everybody had their personal best yellowtail, and you know, it, and and we lost some just some beast of yellowtail, but they're all forty pounds and bigger, oh, you know. Yeah, I was just yeah, it's just a spectacular place. And then you got the big grouper on the Sea of Cortez side, or you know, um, yeah, I I feel like that place, you know, it just the population isn't there to get so much pressure like it is here. So you can go down there and you can still some of those little pockets. There are some little uh, niches down there that have not been touched. And like that's kind of been our thing lately. The last few uh, the last few summers now is really going to push exploration down there and try to figure everything out. It's a special place. Yeah, that, that's what one of my buddies, Nate Baker, um, him and his friends used to go down there all the time. And they would they would just drag a boat down or a couple skiffs and and hit all these different areas. And he said, you know, there are places there that nobody, or I shouldn't say nobody, but see very little pressure from spear fishermen. And he would just take his camera down there and shoot pictures of walls of yellowtail and all kinds of neat stuff down there. It, oh, it's still yeah. a great spot to go. Baja is a phenomenal place. Yeah. it's, And, you know, then it's like such a simple place too, where you're going down there and it's like, you know, here's the cows. We don't drive at night. And there's just all this other stuff. It's just like a little bit of a adventure to us living in the world we live live in and then you go past Ensenada and it's like the wild west you know yeah <laughs> it's, definitely, it's definitely a lot different down there yeah uh so you have uh, any future uh trips you'd like to like to do in the next few years or like any dream trips if you could go on a dream trip gosh if I could go on a dream trip yeah it would it would it would be probably Australia I'd like to go to Indo and hunt um doggies too dog to tuna but um anywhere anywhere tropic that has big fish would definitely be high on my list Travel-wise, we'll just have to have to see how it pans out with the family vacation, whether or not I can, you know, figure out a place to keep my hyperactive uh, seven-year-old occupied while uh, we uh, spearfishing. Yeah, I understand that. Is he has he shown any interest in uh, what you do as far as diving or anything like that? Oh yeah, he he can't wait to to hunt fish because he's um, he is very much like me. I mean, he looks like me when I was a kid, but he the things that he likes are definitely the kinds of things that I like too. So we have a pool in our backyard and he was swimming in that. Gosh, he was in, he was in one of those little baby pools from two years old. He learned to swim probably by four. I think when we were five or when he was five and we were down in uh, Mexico, he was hitting like the bottom of a 12 foot pool. No problem. So he's got a pretty decent breath hold for a little, little kid. And I won't take him until, you know, he's, he's a really good swimmer. And I told him, and he understands this, that the ocean conditions are a little, lot different than a pool it, it he has to be able to swim in rougher water and you know i want him to be able to read conditions a lot better before he starts doing that but i'm sure he'll be shooting little 
um, kelp bass and reef fish and things like that eventually. Yeah, I have, a, I have an eight-year-old at home who's very similar. She's my youngest, and she's just gung-ho. And it's like, hey, do you want to go on the boat? Yes, yes. But, I, you know, like you said, I got to throttle them back because they'll just – they don't understand the consequences yeah. and everything. She'll – we'll hit like uh, like the jetties and stuff, and she'll just hold on my back, and I'll just swim around. And we'll just like – we won't even shoot anything. I'll just point out all the local fish so they could start to understand everything, you know. Yeah. That's my goal is, well, hopefully hopefully this whole virus thing clears out by the end of the summer and then I'll be able to take him to Catalina. Because I promised him, I said, you're about the right age now where we'd strap, strap a life jacket on him or a PFD and take him into the water and he'll be able to see stuff firsthand. He's really excited to do that. So I'm hoping by the end of the summer we'll be ready for that. that that's such, such a blessing. I mean, honestly, to be able to share. I mean, that's kind of the cool thing about uh, I feel like what we do too is that we get to pass that on that like that joy for the love of the ocean and just the you know not just the ocean but the uh, nature in itself to the kids and the kids love it you know yeah. it's just a great thing. Yeah, my my his his favorite thing is is to come down to you know my aquarium like we had um, Disneyland passes and Knotts passes and stuff and I'll be like well what do you want to do and he goes yeah I want to go down to your work I'm like. Oh man, that's like a 50 mile drive from my house and I've been there all week, but we'll still go down there. We'll go down to, to the aquarium and um, pull around in the tide pools and look at rocks and things like that. He's really into fossils. So we've been able to find some fossil whale stuff in the rocks there. And then he, he's always asking me, we had those um, baby black sea bass, the giant sea bass that we raised. And he's like, oh, I want to see those. And you know, he's been seeing them kind of grow up. So he's, he is really into the ocean. He's really into those kind of things to see. Let's talk about that because you just recently did a project, right? Where you were uh, releasing black sea bass. Yeah, yeah. Um, so that was that was a project. It was actually a conglomerate of um, a bunch of institutions. It was the the permit was under Dr. Larry Allen. So he's at Cal State Northridge, Southern California Marine Institute in Terminal Island had um, his large fish. He had three. Uh, giant sea bass that were in a holding pen and he was basically just recording sounds from them but they were there for uh, a long enough period that they got used to that tank so it used to be that that nobody ever thought that giant sea bass would spawn in a shallow tank shallower than like you know 20 or 30 feet or 40 feet i can't remember what the data is but they they were said to do some kind of like um like a swimming pattern when they would release the eggs and the sperm so they never thought it would happen in the small tank. And the first one aquarium that was ever, ever able to raise them was Long Beach Aquarium. In fact, in their tank, they have, uh, I don't know if they have three or two, but they definitely had a pair that were spawning. And about three, I want to say three years ago, they raised a single baby um, to a juvenile stage. And that was a big, big deal. Nobody had ever done that before. And the way that this this thing whole all happened is I had contacted uh, Nate Jarls, who's one of their curators at Long Beach, because one of our volunteers at the aquarium is a very good friend of my family. He's a, he's an artist. His name is Kubo. He draws larval fish. That's his thing. And he always told me, hey, can we get larval black sea bass or giant sea bass so I could draw them? And I'm like, man, that's a long shot. So I contacted Nate. Nate said, hey, if we ever get any babies, we'll let you know. Sure enough, Southern California Marine Institute, um, Larry Allen's fish had some eggs, had a lot of eggs. And Nate put us in, in contact with uh, one of the aquarists at Long Beach um, named Nicole. And Nicole 
told us, you know, go ahead and come down and we'll split up some of the eggs. So Long Beach took a bunch of eggs. We took eggs. We didn't really know how to raise them beyond what Long Beach had done in the past. And there's a special tank that you use called a chrysal. It's a kind that you raise jellyfish in, basically. And they said, well, you can try to raise them in there. And we did. And they did okay. But what we found out is we started tweaking a lot of things. And, and one of the biggies that I won't bore you with, it's nutrition. So the nutrition of the larval fish is super critical. You have to give them a special kind of like fatty acid at certain dates. And we kind of cracked the code on that by, by modeling some other kinds of fish. And long story short, we were able to get, um, I think at one time we had 1,200 baby giant sea bass settle out from larva to where they, where they are not in a, a chrysal tank anymore, where they're actually settling towards the bottom of the tank and swimming on their own. And that was undone. Nobody had ever done that before. Now, of course, not all of those survive. They're going to start to peter out as they grow. But what we ended up with was about 400, I don't know, maybe two to three inch long giant sea bass. And I always tell my friends, you know, come down to the aquarium because we had them on display. And I was like, this is the only time in the history of our planet that anybody has ever seen that many giant sea bass babies in one spot in one time. It's just never been done. It was such a monumental event. So we had those babies. Um, we kept 200 of them. We gave the other 200 to the Aquarium of the Pacific to hold because our, we were lucky. At our aquarium, we have a, a what's called an aquatic nursery. And it's an area where we're able to raise larval fish because we have the staff for it. Um, AOP doesn't really have a dedicated staff to raise larval fish. It was just Nicole was the one who was taking care of them there. So I think they got like, I think they got three to settle, but we had hundreds. So they, they um, were able to take half of them from us to kind of take care of them. And then we were going to release them on separate dates. So ours was the first release and that was, I don't know, the second week of March. So we released a little under, I think, 200 um, of the larval fish in a, in a, I can't tell you where it was in kind of like a classified location, but we had seen, um, baby giant sea bass before. And it was amazing. I've got footage of that and they're actually, we should be showing that at the aquarium pretty soon. And you'll see the, this cage that I built where we lowered it real slowly with, um, it was myself, uh, another one of our staff divers, Daryl Dolesky and a photographer named Mike Kofer. And Mike was the one who had had actually photographed lots and lots of baby black sea bass in this particular location. So he knew that they were going to be okay being released there. So they would be you know, going off doing their thing. So we released them and they all came out of the cage and it was, you want to talk about a national geographic moment that the lid of that cage comes off to the side. I was shooting video. So I backed off and you see um, our other diver, Daryl, he kind of tilts the cage and you just see a cloud of, of baby giant sea bass swimming out of that cage onto the sand. And it was cool. So like you asked me, like if there's anything that I see different about fish than a normal person is, I can tell you one thing is I know when a fish is hungry because I've raised so many different fish at the aquarium. I'm feeding fish all the time. When those fish came out of the cage, they were already hungry. You could look at them. Their fins are erect. They're they're kind of moving around and black sea bass. I'm sure you've seen this. A lot of times when they're inquisitive, you'll see them turn sideways on you. Like you swim next to them. They swim sideways and look at you with almost like it's, they're looking at one eye. And I've got video of that during the release where one of the larger, one of the babies, like a three inch one, he cruised up right next to me and he just kind of turned sideways and is looking at me. His fins are all erect. 
when I hit the surface, I told my coworkers, I'm like, these fish are 100% ready to feed. I would not doubt if I had some krill or some small mysid shrimp, if I had dropped them, they would have ate them right there on the spot. In fact, Mike said when he was following them, he saw them kind of picking up stuff on the bottom as they swam away. I mean, it was just an incredible story. Now, the other part to that story that we don't know is nobody knows what happens to those black sea bass from the time that um, they're, they're, you see them in like sandy areas. Like we'll see them in certain sandy reefy areas when they're about, I don't know, about three inches to about six inches. Then they disappear. And then, you know, as divers, we put in, free divers put in more time in the water than I think a lot of areas where we're going to see fish because we're quieter. I, I don't know anybody who's seen um, a giant sea bass inside a kelp forest that's like 12 inches. I've seen them maybe two feet or so, but I haven't seen them 12 inches. So nobody really knows what happens to those fish from the three inch size to like, you know, that two foot size. We don't know if they're going to rocky reefs. Um, I think my personal guess and some of our team's guesses that they might be settling out in deeper water, like in about 200 feet of water where there's small reefs or something where they're starting to pick up small larval fish as they grow. And then eventually they migrate back into the, uh, the kelp forest where we see them. But it's one of those things where we don't know. So luckily at the aquarium, we still have, I think we have 15 or so fish that um, Chris Lowe, I think Chris Lowe's lab at Cal State Long Beach is eventually going to tag them when they get larger with acoustical tags and release them so we could find out what happens to these fish during that, that size class. We don't know where they go. And, and for me, just curiosity-wise, I want to hear. All right. Hello. Yeah. Can you hear me, bro? Uh, yeah, yeah. I just got, I just lost you for like a second. You said oh, okay. for you, curiosity wise. Oh yeah. For me, it's just, I just want to see what happens to them. I, I, I just don't know where they go. Nobody really knows. Well, that's what I was going to ask you actually. Cause, um, you know, so many, uh, I feel like, um, I guess biologists in general, like, and you know, we as fishermen or spear fishermen, right. We're always like, uh, seem there seems to be a vibe where it's like we don't tr trust science and we don't trust because we've seen it we don't trust like the uh you know cal state fishing game or whatever it is and it's such a unique relationship kind of having seen both ends of the spectrum where um you know what there is a lot of political crap that goes on because science is usually funded by you know the political aspect the states and the federal government so there if there's no problem then there's not going to be any funding so um yeah and so so i feel like people are always are you know we need to uh they're all with the especially with the protected areas and things like that i feel like a lot of the biologists that i've dealt with and friends of mine through my old job and stuff like that they are would be a hundred percent on board with us uh as spear fishermen and and what we see because i feel like we see so much more than just a regular biologist who's doing fish counts at the ramp um and we'd have so much to offer i feel like if we actually like i don't want to say for lack of a better term join forces with them or at least had a voice where we could communicate and work with them because i feel like we all want the same thing however there seems to be like this uh, line sometimes the more people I talk to it's like they don't either trust the science or they feel like they you know you hear so much negativity about they close this then they close that and I feel like I'm kind of one of the few that's like 
well, good. I don't mind if they close it, but I just would like some communication on what is the plan moving forward. Are we going to like open it up in five years and then close this area? Because if um, making the environment which I'm going to be hunting in better and it needs to be some places where I hunt, it's like a ghost town, then I'm all for it and I'll go hunt somewhere else. But it seems like it's nice to have people like you in the industry and doing what you do to be able to feel, I feel like you're a very powerful voice because you see both ends of the spectrum. Like you bridge that gap. Do you, do you understand what I'm saying about that? Sure. Or? Sure. I mean, there, there's, there's, you know, this, it's one of those things where you're saying it's a hot topic and it is fishermen don't like to lose access areas. And when the whole MPA thing came through, it was rough on fishermen. It was rough on everybody, especially for me, a lot of areas that I dive in Palos Verdes were, um, shut off and that cut down my diving tremendously like Point Vicente which was a fishing access that kind of taxpayers paid for got shut down and that was one of the safest entries I could do but at the same time so my take is if people when they ask me you know what do you think I'm like you know I am 100% on board that there's certain areas should be shut down and there should be certain size limits on certain fish because otherwise, you know, you keep shooting all the little ones and people keep harvesting them and fishing them and netting them. You're not going to have any fish. So they have to have some kind of intervention. I, I would only wish that they had kind of moved it to areas that were um, pressured, but not were easier access for fishermen. Because there's a lot of places where guys can't go or now they're hiking down, you know, areas that are steeper and there's more chance that somebody's going to fall and get hurt. They should have left some of the areas, I think, open that would have been accessible for certain guys to be able to, to hunt or certain people to hunt, I should say, and fish. And it's just shutting down those areas that were easier for us to get to. I, I really wish they had moved it up the coast a little bit further somewhere else. But when you're asking about the necessity, yeah, there, there had to be something done on certain things. When the when they did the whole kelp bass size limit thing, I heard a lot of guys, oh, you know, that's terrible, blah, blah, blah. And I do understand from the fishing perspective if you own a fishing boat you you have to catch fish for guys to climb on your boat to pay you know to pay to go but at the same time we were um fishing for sand bass and stuff during the spawn and taking you know 10 fish a piece and i think that's what decimated the sand bass um, bite when they were you know usually it was in the summer twilight trips i used to go on them all the time and we would catch a ton of sand bass and it's like now you can only catch half of them five for me, five fish is a lot of fish. If they're over <laughs> inches long, that's a lot of fish. And I'm still happy that they kind of did that one. I think I think the size limit for kelp bass and sand bass and things like that was a good thing to do. No, I, I you know, it's funny you say like five fish, right? And it's like, for me, it's the experience of the whole thing, right? And I do like to eat fish. However, if I run out of fish, I can just go out and get more. It gives me an excuse to go dive. Yeah. Like I don't need to load up with 400 pounds of fish and then I'm not going to dive for the rest of the year. Cause I'm still going to dive. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's the other, one of the other bonus things about, about being a spear fisherman is, is, and a lot of people don't understand this. And I, I try to explain this to people when I run into them, because when you're coming out of the water with a spear gun, it's very intimidating for somebody who isn't a spear fisherman. First off, they always think it's loaded. And I always tell them, no, not loaded. Don't worry. You know, the bands aren't cocked. You don't have to worry about them. But the other thing I tell them is, you know, a lot of people think, well, you kill fish all the time. Da, da, da. No, that's untrue. I mean, the time that we're in the water, when we come out of the water, I'd say 90% of the time we don't have anything. 
So spearfishing guys were real selective on what we shoot and, and, and as it should be, we have a target that we're hunting like a sea bass during the season when it's, uh, just one sea bass per day, you know, that's all you take is just one fish and that fish will last you a long time. It's not like we're out, out there blasting, you know, thousands of fish at a time. You're taking one fish. It's a selected, you know, fishing kind of thing. And, and it's sustainable. I've been fishing game years ago, said that nobody can survive on, just spearfishing your whole life because you'll starve to death. It's, it's yeah. just not going to happen. Um, so when we spearfish, I always tell people, you know, we get to see all kinds of cool stuff. The ocean is loaded with life. We're not taking all that life. We're taking one fish, you know, one breath at a time. And it's very selective. Think about it. There's no bycatch. We're not dragging a net through the water, killing thousands of little, small, you know, larval fish and things like that. We're taking one fish at a time. And to me, that is a, it's kind of a very ethical way to go. No, that's a solid, solid point. I mean, yeah, I, I talk about it all the time. Like I literally, literally just go out and shoot one fish and I'm good. If that doesn't happen, it doesn't happen, you know? Um, but yeah, you, you, you know, even when you go offshore and then you see the, uh, the commercial, uh, tuna boats with helicopters and planes and all that, and you're trying to get one fish that day or two, you know, for the max. But I mean, literally to be honest, one fish for the whole boat, if I can, and then uh, you see them scoop up like a mile of tuna. And you're like, well, that's not cool. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's yeah. that's one of one of the things when when a lot of environmentalists come down on on people and they're like, you know, you're you guys shouldn't be doing this. Da, 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 da. A lot of times when I talk to people and the argument gets heated, I, I'll ask them like, you ever eat sushi? Oh yeah, I eat sushi. You buy it at a restaurant? Yeah, I buy it on a restaurant. How did they get that fish? You know, did they catch one fish and that was it for the whole restaurant, you know, for you? No, that came from a net boat probably. And, and there was a lot of tuna that they killed. It's not like I'm killing a hundred thousand tuna. You know, if I'm lucky, I'll get one a year. It's a big difference. It's not, it's not a big wasteful thing. So a lot of times that quiets people down. They don't really, I think a lot of people don't understand where their food actually comes from, but spear fishermen know where they come from because we harvest them. You know, we bleed them and, and usually prepare them ourselves. I know I do. So I want, I want to pass that on to my kid, too. I want him to understand that, that we're taking a valued resource and we're doing it very selectively. Yeah, and respectfully, you know, like when I kill a fish, it's like, you know, knowing all the time and everything it put in to get that thing. And then, yeah. you know, you take it, you take its life, you bleed it. You, um, there's a little bit of respect you have. Like you said, you know where your food's coming from and uh, – something had to die. And that's not, you know, I don't take that lightly as much, but I mean, it's, it, I respect it, uh, where my food came from, uh, cause of what it took, you know? Yeah. And I mean, the other, the other bonus of on the flip side of being a spear fisherman is you will get the freshest fish that <laughs> available. I mean, the stuff that we get, especially when we prepare it, um, bleeding it right there in the water, gutting it, oh, yeah. we'll gut it right there in the water, put it on ice, get home, fillet it out, cut all the red blood out of it and everything else. I mean, that, that quality is always good. When the first bluefin that I got, when I prepped it, I gave it to um, Kubo, the guy who was, I was telling you about our staff artist that was doing all the drawings. And he said, man, that was some of the best tuna he's ever had. You know, he grew up in Japan and everything. He said that was the best prepared that he's ever had. And I said, it's just the way that we did it. I mean, I had iced it down and made sure that it was bled and, and that, that meat never got you know, very warm at all. So it, the quality was phenomenal. And everybody that I shared that fish with said the same thing. He said that, wow, this, this tuna is unbelievable. 
that's one of the things I always tell them, you know, as a spear fisherman, we're really lucky. We get the freshest fish possible. And if you know how to take care of it and prepare it, you know, that's a bonus. And it's crazy is too, is uh, like you said, when you actually have fish that's fresh like that, you realize you've been eating crap forever and you realize how good like that fish really is where it doesn't taste acidic or anything like that. Yeah, I, I, I rarely buy fish at a restaurant. Anytime I go there, it'll be beef or something else because, and when I get it, fish tacos are different. Fish tacos are, are really good at restaurants, but re- other fish, I am rarely impressed with it. When I get it, I'm like, wow, I'm so sad that I ordered this <laughs> instead of the ribeye or something else. It's just, it's uh, just not, not the same. Yeah, 100%. I have my little code too where I'm like, I'm never going to order bluefin at a restaurant. Uh, if I want a bluefin, I'm going to go get a bluefin. It's just my little thing that I'm going to try to do to make a difference, whatever. Uh, but because of that, too, you know when you when you eat it, it's like, oh, I've had better. Oh, it's in my refrigerator. You know, like, why did I pay for this? Um, other than to support local fishermen, too, you know. <laughs> but, I mean, yeah. that's it. Well, Chris, I don't want to keep you. I know it's getting late. Um, and I just really want to appreciate you uh, taking the time to meet up with me and talk and uh Maybe you ever come down to San Diego, I'll take you out diving. Uh, It was a pleasure to meet you. And uh, I'd love to pick your brain more about the science of things when, you know, when we meet up or something like that. So, yeah, I mean, anytime, Brett, thank you very much for giving me the opportunity to talk to you. But anytime you want to talk to me, just let me know. Oh, no problem. I will. (laughs) Thanks. I appreciate it, man. All right. Take care. All right. Cool. You want to succeed. You want to fish. You want to be one of the greatest. Tune in to West Marine's Life on the Water, presented by Costa Custom Boats, every Saturday night from 7 to 9 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV. Spend your Saturdays with Life on the Water. Join Captain Brandon Simmons for fishing, diving, travel, and so much more. You want to succeed. You want to fish. You want to be one of the greatest. Oh, look at that thing, dude. (laughs) Let's see what kind of trouble we can get into today. Don't miss Life on the Water every Saturday night from 7 to 9 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV. (laughs) The destination for outdoor entertainment.